Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and Seb Stafford-Bloor of Football 365. Well... Who'd have thought it? Manchester City already five points adrift in the Premier League. I know it's ridiculously early and it's unrealistic to expect Liverpool to avoid a blip. But has the game changed slightly? Has the pressure on City in the Champions League increased? Should Europe be their priority? What do you think, John? I think it will be. And I think it has been even before a couple of blips already this season. Simply because... I just have this feeling that Pep Guardiola, when, when you see him talk even towards the end of last season, from throughout the summer and at the start of this season, that he's almost got something to prove. Criticism really bites at him. It was interesting to see him interviewed after that Norwich game. I don't know whether people have seen the clip of him talking in the sort of the press conference about how in his first season, you know, people were calling him Fraudiola. I was thinking, blimey. That's three years old, Pet. Why are you still worried about that sort of thing? You're a genius, you know. But it clearly irks him. And I think that that, that criticism of last season, when in my view at times they were just the best team on the planet, I mean, they were just amazing, that they fell short. And I think that criticism would have would have stung. And I think that, that basically they'll go all guns blazing for um, the Champions League and Europe this season. I actually fancy them to win it. I think that basically, yes, you could argue that they're, they do look frail and vulnerable in defence and maybe those mistakes, you know, like Stones and Otamendi made, will be punished even greater in the Champions League by better opponents week in, week out. Um, but I just think that, that City have got unfinished business there. I do think that they've left themselves woefully short in defence and I think that that makes it almost impossible then to win two major trophies like the Premier League and Champions League. Mm. So you almost have to prioritise one. And I think then that City will prioritise Europe and I think they'll do it. Yeah. You know, it's actually a very uncharacteristic mistake because the one thing you can say about Manchester City is that the recruitment policy has been really strategic and really successful. Mm-hmm. They paid around about £80 million combined for Stones and Otamendi. Yeah. Yet they allowed company to leave to go into his managerial apprenticeship without really getting an adequate replacement. You know, you had someone like Delit who might well have been a perfect fit for them, you know, being allowed to go elsewhere. Is that going to be looked at as their key mistake? Of course. Oh, another name I throw in there, Mike, is Toby Alderweireld. I mean, you think about, if you think about what company was, and I, I accept that someone like Alderweireld is coming towards the end of his prime, but you could have got two, three really, really good years from a season Premier League centre-half out of him. Um, and now you're left with, I mean, 
there never seems to be a time when um, when Nicholas Otamendi was not under scrutiny, if that makes sense. I know John Stones, we've got a little bit more of a vested interest in him because of because he's an England player. He's regressed, though, hasn't he? I, I, I think so. I also think Carl Walker has uh, escaped a bit of scrutiny. I thought he was appalling at the weekend, and his his sort of his complaints about Norwich's second goal were. I'm not sure. I still, looking back now, I still don't know what his issue is with that move. Um, I think he's uh, he's had a bit of a regression, and, and there seems to be a bit of a, an imbalance within that system. Um, I'm not quite sure beyond spending a lot of money on a delict what the what the answer is because I think to be honest that that defence needs an entire rebuild. Goalkeeper aside, left back is uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm not sure Zinchenko is uh, is a fullback. Walker is uh, has never been a defensively sound fullback, brilliant attacking player. And Stones and Otamendi have had always had these question marks against him. So I think as a department it looks very underwhelming and yeah, really um I wouldn't, I wouldn't use a, a, a word as strong as neglected, um, but if you, if, if, given what we said about their priority lying in the Champions League, I mean, every major team in, on the continent is going to have some joy against that group, I would have thought. Mm. Which then, obviously, places the accent on further forward. Mm. Um, a lot of talk about Raheem Sterling, mm. uh, obviously not around that Carra Road. Um, what about him in terms of him being, you know, he's been talked of as in that Ronaldo-Messi class, which yeah. is probably a bit of hype, but how good is he and how good can he be? Oh, I, d- I just think, uh, when listen, Carroll aside, when, when he plays well and when, when he's at his best, I think he's the best player in the Premier League right now. I just also think he's given himself a greater elevation for um, personality-wise and, and character. And he's been the voice of a generation, hasn't he? I think that's the most most important thing. But leaving that aside, if we, if we can, just to f- sort of focus on football. But he, he's just been exceptional this season. Uh, you know, I watch him play for England and, I mean, the confidence that he plays with. He was, I mean, it was one of the best performances I've seen from any player in an England shirt in that first 45 minutes against Kosovo. I know sort of kind of rather like the England team, you know, sort of trailed away a little bit in the second half. But he was absolutely untouchable. He's absolutely fantastic. And I guess those Messi-Ronaldo things are said because they are nearing the end themselves. You know, they're 30s, aren't they? And it's almost, well, it is probably completely unfair because we are looking, I think, for someone to step forward um, from, I wouldn't say the shadows, but for someone to step forward and kind of take that mantle on because Messi and Ronaldo can't go on forever. Forever, Surely they'll probably both be retired within five years um, and Raheem Sterling is still so young, still so good that basically that's probably when he's going to be at his peak. Mm. And I just think that the big teams from abroad will come knocking at some juncture in the future, that will again will give him the sort of the opportunity. I don't know whether he, he would want to go and play abroad. He's previously said that that would be something to, to appeal to him. I have to say, with Man City and Guardiola in charge, there he, he he can win everything that he, he needs to, everything that he desires at City, and just go on from strength to strength. What I'm trying to say is that he's definitely got that potential in years to come to be the most exciting and the best player in the world without question. Mm. Talent development at Manchester City. Yes. Let's call it the Foden dilemma, shall we? Um, here's someone, you know, praised to the rooftops by Guardiola. Yeah, there was, almost, there was almost like an ironic tweet at the weekend where he was congratulating Jadon Sancho for his 50 appearances in the Bundesliga. 
he wouldn't be human if he didn't think to himself, well, that could be me. Of course, of course. I find that whole scenario very confusing because on the one hand, you have um, Guardiola employing, uh, imploring Phil Foden to make his case, to, you know, uh, to kick down his door and demand a place in the first team. On the other, um, he's not really being given the tools with which to fight for that because um, prior to this weekend, I think he played 11 Premier League minutes all season. Uh, he's a 19-year-old who, at a club like that, you're always going to feel slightly vulnerable about your place in the hierarchy because you're never more than six months away from having a new £50 million competitor in your position. Um, so I'm not sure what the road ahead is for him. It's, it's interesting because it's kind of, it's contrary to what Guardiola has stood for in the past, whereas, because he's had this sort of, this uh, appetite to, to uh, explore new talent. So, for instance, the obvious example would be Sergio Busquets straight from Barcelona B to the first team. With Foden, he's very publicly called him the most talented player he's ever worked with. Um, he's rejected all that Jack Wilshire stuff that went on all those years ago. He's drawn a, a very thick dividing line between that. He's not saying, right, there are a dozen Phil Fodens in the Barcelona Academy. Um, and yet, there's almost a kind of an antagonistic edge to his, to his challenging of the player. It's strange. It's, it's unusual. It's almost a little bit Mourinho-esque. Without a little, without the sort of the malignancy and the kind of the Luke Shaw aspect that, that went on, it's 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 quite similar. Um, so I don't know. I I don't know what Phil Foden is really expected to do. And also, with someone like that, um, great talent that he is, I still don't know what kind of midfielder he is. And you can't know that until you expose him to proper competition in the Premier League. Do you expect him to play against Shakhtar? No, probably not, because it's the first game of the group stage. It sets the tone for your campaign. I think Guardiola has become quite pragmatic over the years. I think maybe that's something that City have brought out from him. With the emphasis, we've already discussed this, the emphasis that they place on the European Cup, he's not going to want to take risks in that game. So, no, I wouldn't have thought so. And if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to expose this great talent to, um, to the kind of opposition which actually test him, not you know, a substitute appearance when you're 4-0 up against West Ham, because that's different. Um, when you, when actually everything is on the line and in that kind of hostile environment as well. No, I don't think so. It's baffling. Um, I'm not one of the people that thinks, right, he should be in the England team, he should be starting for Man City. But I'm interested in the, the sort of, the, the lack of appetite to explore what he could be at Man City. It's slightly strange. Mm. Now, you can tell it's Champions League week. John, because uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid uh, are linked with players. <laughs> so uh, they've been linked uh, this morning, Monday morning, with uh, Virgil van Dijk. Mm. Anything in that? I, I, again, I just think with Virgil van Dijk, it was, uh, I actually, someone earlier in the summer told me that basically Barcelona sort of kind of, you know, al almost explored the idea of, of trying to see, see if they could get van Dijk and then van, they were given such short shrift you know, sort of through the back door that they basically decided, obviously, it was a complete waste of their time going through the front door. So I, I just don't see it with, with Van Dyke. I think Van Dyke is just... What is clear, and I thought what was fantastic about the Van Dyke sort of pursuit, was that Van Dyke clearly had every club in Europe, you know, after him. Every club in Europe wanted to sign him. But it was obvious to everyone that basically he wanted to go to, to Liverpool and to Anfield because of Jurgen Klopp. Jurgen Klopp sold him something which I think has then been realised with obviously the Champions League success and look at them now, I think that you know that, that they've got a great chance of winning the Premier League title. 
why on earth would he kind of give that up for to go to you know, what are both sort of almost soap operas in Spain at, at the moment? You know, who's going to be the better team? Which one will work out? And I just think it's a gamble. And Van Dyke just looks so happy, just looks so brilliant in his, in, his, in his play. And that's all because, you know, of Liverpool. Imagine also, by the way, taking Van Dyke out of that Liverpool team. We talk about Man City at Norwich. Well, you have to say there would be probably the element of fear that if you took that out of Van Dyke out of Liverpool, they would end up being, you know, as vulnerable and as frail as City look right now. And I just think Van Dyke is so important to Liverpool, but I think he also appreciates what Liverpool have done for him. And you can see that there's a genuine, I think, affection and genuine respect, you know, between the two. But it's that connection between Klopp and Van Dyke, which for me just makes it look absolutely impossible for either club to stand a realistic chance within the next, you know, couple of years at least, at the very least, mm. you know, who knows what happened beyond that to, to stand any chance of getting him. Yeah, how do you how do you think Liverpool said will approach the Champions League in certainly the group stage where, you know, they start with their probably their trickiest tie away at Napoli. Yeah. Um, is it a case of get as many points as possible as quickly as possible and then rotate after that? I'd have thought so, Mike. I'd have thought so because I. Um, I think actually one of the things that John alluded to there is you take a couple of these individual players out of that side or if you overstretch them, you've got a problem. I'd, I'd put in Roberto Firmino into that group as well because we've already seen the season. If, you, um, if you're not able to start him, then all of a sudden Salah, Mane, that access looks very, very different. Mm, that um, touch, by the way, for the Salah goal was unbelievable, wasn't it? That's outrageous. Outrageous. Even in slow motion, I can't actually work out how he did it. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, no, I, I think so. I think, I think this is definitely a case where, um, given how the Premier League works, and I know we've got um, a, a slight winter break happening this year, but I think um, Liverpool really need to be through and secure in the Champions League before we get to November, December, and, they, and the fixtures start coming heavily. Um, so yeah, I, um, yeah let's... let's uh, also, interesting because they lost that game last year away in Napoli. It was, um, and that's a very, very talented Napoli side who... Um, who I, I didn't see this weekend, but I saw their ridiculous uh, 4-3, uh, 4-3 loss to Juventus when they, they played ever so well coming back from a 3-0 deficit. Um, and that's a, that's a difficult game. So get that done, and then all of a sudden the route through to the knockout stages looks, uh, looks far easier. Mm. With that front three, are we at the stage now where they are irreplaceable? Yeah, they are. They're just... It's interesting, isn't it, with, with Liverpool in other departments of their team... They can sort of slightly make the you know centre half sort of who plays along Van Dijk slightly interchangeable. You know sometimes you'll go for, for for Gomez rather than Alexander Arnold in say games where sort of he thinks maybe a tighter approach. He changes it a lot in, in the midfield three, but that front three just make themselves irresistible. It's I think it's not impossible. You know it, it, it comes a big game, comes the crucial game. Klopp. I mean, obviously, Origi now injured slightly, but it's just, it's 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 an issue, I think, in a way, um, for Liverpool because they're just not interchangeable in the way that other departments are. And I just think when you've got this, the toughest game of of the group away in Naples. I mean, I think it's a hell of a game, by the way. This is what the Champions League is about. It's against it's the holders. In the bear pit, which is which is sort of you know Napoli away. It's just I think it's a fantastic game, without doubt. It's the game of the week, I think, and it's it's a fabulous sort of an occasion. And I just think it it will be a wonderful test 
for um, Liverpool. But also, I do think that Na- Napoli will be going, how on earth do we stop these guys? Because it's the best front three, I think, like as, as the combination in, in Europe. I mean, individually, they're just it's sensational. Firmino is getting, you know, rightly the, the, the praise that he deserves because he's it's almost like the... He, he, he almost becomes the forgotten component mm. because he's obviously maybe not quite as prolific as the others. But it's interesting, it's isn't it? Rate. It's astonishing. Yeah, but you look at you look at Mane, you know, thirty-one goals since the start of last season, one more than Salah. Yet the praise, well, it hasn't been grudging, but it took a while to arrive, didn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, it's hard though because I mean, given what Mohamed Salah did in his first season, you're always going to struggle in that shadow. Yeah. But Mane and, and Firmino have been kind of in the same boat because you kind of, I think the value of that combination is the combination itself. The individuals, if if we think back to a time before all of those players were at Liverpool, and what the perception of them was, and how we thought of them within the hierarchy of, of European football, it was nothing like what exists now. And it's very interesting. You take you take a Mane out, you take a Firmino out. And all of a sudden, the kind of the facilitating aspect of what they do um, kind of ripples into the performance of, of, a, of another player within that access. Salah is not the same player without Manny on the other side. Neither are the same without Firmino kind of dragging a defence and displacing them through the middle. It's different. Mane is, uh, yeah, he's a terrific player. I don't, I, I don't think he's irreplaceable. I think if you were, for instance, to put a Son Heung Min in that position, I think he'd be equally, if not slightly differently, destructive. Um, but yeah, as a combination, it's, it's unrivaled. Uh, be very interesting, actually, with, with them going to Napoli, I'll be very interested to see how uh, Koulibaly, the, the Napoli centre-half, does against uh, them, because he's a terrific player, um, smart and, and just so gifted in so many different ways. So that's a, that's a really interesting little subplot there, I think. Mm. What about, you know, look at the bigger picture um, of Liverpool as a team. Um, first top-flight team uh, to score more than once in 14 consecutive victories. Given all that, how do they compare to the great Liverpool teams of the sort of 70s and 80s, do you think? The only thing I think about that is, and I guess obviously in the 70s and 80s, you know, people could throw up sort of kind of Nottingham Forest, for example, you know, sort of the, then the sort of break in that dominance. I just think that the only thing was that Liverpool in that, in that time were just so dominant, so good, you know, that, that some of their flowing football was remarkable even in the sort of the late 80s when sort of kind of then John Barnes and Beardsley come in you know it's just again it was it was it was fabulous to watch I do think they sort of I do think you know I mean I know people sometimes get wound up by comparisons in this obviously in football there's you know there's no other sport I don't think that sort of compares sort of you know previous teams to sort of current teams like we do in football but I do think that it's interesting because the only thing now is that basically Liverpool is sort of toe-to-toe, I think, with, with, with Man City. And I think the only thing is about the previous team was that they were away from everyone else because they were so good. The, the best team mm. in England for, for you know a couple of decades and the best team in Europe you know, as well, dominating the European Cup for several seasons. And I just think that they were, they were fabulous. But this team... Is just makes it so difficult to compare with the past simply because they play at such a pace. Mm. They play at such an intensity. I mean, the full-backs by themselves are, mm. are amazing. Robertson's you know. the best left-back in the league, isn't he? I just think he's probably... I can't think of a better left-back right now in the world. I just think he's fabulous. You know, he's just rampaging. He's, I interviewed him last season, and he's just so normal. 
And he's so humble, just, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. He's yeah. just like, you know, some of these guys, and, and Liverpool actually probably benefit more than most. They've got a lot of their players are just normal down to earth. You know, they've got a few superstars. But Robertson sort of kind of typifies that sort of, you know, just humble down to earth superstar. Because he's amazing. I mean, he just he just goes and wins games for Liverpool. He drives the game. When Liverpool sort of, you know, there were periods maybe on Saturday when they just sort of performance dropped a little bit. And, and, and Robertson's the one that sometimes can, you know, like he did on Saturday, fly in with a tackle and just lift it and raise Anfield and just kind of, you know, change the mood and then go on these incredible driving runs. I mean, so unlucky, you, you know, with one run that he didn't, you know, produce a goal on Saturday. But he's fabulous. And that, that I think they've got, Elements of that throughout throughout the team in, in, in many ways. You know, Van Dyke with with an amazing tackle. You know, Allison when he's fit and playing. You know, with an incredible save. You know, it's just a, the front three. We know what they're capable of, but they've got those individuals, and I think it's typified by, by you know mm. Robertson, who's that unsung wonderful hero. Yeah, Liverpool are at Chelsea on Sunday. Um, I'm going to cannibalise the song title here, but, but the, the, the kids are all right, aren't they? <laughs> they are. They are. I, um, it's wonderful to see, actually, particularly someone like Mason Mount. Um, I was reading a few bits and pieces from the, um, you know, the, the summary pieces from the weekend um, on the way here this morning, and um, it's interesting that the, the perception seems to be that this is kind of a happy accident. Like, had there been no transfer ban, then... You could see, for instance, Chelsea installing a kind of uh, an ideologue from Europe and, you know, bringing in his sort of little cabal of, of, of players. Um, but it's actually, it's lovely to see not only them individually succeed, but then to succeed together. Right, Tammy Abraham, I don't know how good Tammy Abraham is. I don't know whether this is going to be indicative of his Premier League career. But it sure is nice to see him score the kind of goals, like his hat-trick goal at Molyneux uh, on Saturday. What a well-taken finish that was. Mm. Um, Mason and Tamori though as well. Mm. I, mean, <laughs> I didn't. I'll be my hands. I didn't know he had that in his game, but terrific. I, I love that he's getting a chance. I love that actually. If we think back to Old Trafford on the first day of the season, when Chelsea, hey, it probably didn't deserve to lose four 0 but they were outplayed, um, and Lampard got some flack. Um, I mean, Jose Mourinho in the Sky Sports studio giving him some, uh, uh, you know, giving some opinions. Um, but he had the conviction to say, no, they're going to play. Because also players like, someone like Tammy Abraham, he didn't have the best start. He wasn't immediately successful. There are a few people, I think I myself wrote something saying, I think Giroud is the way forward here. He's the placeholder until you can upgrade. Um, Abraham has uh, disproven that pretty comprehensively. Mount, we know, is superb. He has been all the way through his England age group career. You, you could see he's going to be a, a very good player. But even so, like, it takes some conviction to say, you're going to be my number 10 at this club with these conditions, with these pressures that are typically associated with, if you don't win a couple of games at Chelsea, irrespective of whether you're Frank Lampard or Mauricio Sarri or whoever else, you're going to have a, a, bit of, uh, a bit of difficulty. But he's put them in the team and, and they're playing brilliantly. And I, I, you know what I love? I, I love seeing academy players celebrate good moments together. Mm-hmm. Like there's, um, I remember the, the, the old Man United team when, um, when that group, the Class 92 players, came through and... You know, you get a Beckham goal, a Scholes goal, or, or slightly before that, Lee Sharp. I know that's a slightly different case. He came from Torquay. But you see all these young players sort of celebrate their arrival en masse. It's, uh, it's very affecting. And it's lovely to see. Mm. You're going to be at the bridge on Tuesday night for the Valencia mm. game, John. 
Where are we in terms of who holds the balance of power in that group? Valencia in a bit of turmoil. Mm. You expect Chelsea to win that? I do think they'll win on Tuesday night. Yeah, Valencia are in turmoil, you know, sort of changing the manager and, and it's going to be a difficult season for them. But I do think it's still a hard group for, for Chelsea. I fancy them go through, but, you know, Ajax in the, in the group as well. And you have to say the sort of kind of, it's going to be two from those three. And I just fancy that Chelsea will then... I think probably sneak through, and I, I, no one should. I don't think underestimate that as an achievement because you know Chelsea, you know, basically got are not haven't been in the sort of the Champions League. The, the, honestly, I do think the Champions League is always generally dictated by teams who sort of strengthen and have got sort of superstar signings. And I just think that Chelsea are in this weird place because because of the transfer ban. But I love it. I think it. Like yeah. I said, I just think it's a brilliant breath of fresh air. Mm. I think Lampard was the perfect appointment. There's going to be trials and tribulations along the way. I mean, there was even at the start of the season looking for that first win. And I just think that that it's going to be a it's going to be so different. Chelsea, I think, is going to be one of the best stories to cover this season. And I just think it could easily you know, kind of win on Tuesday and then get destroyed on Sunday. And the fact of the matter is that they basically, even if they do get destroyed against Liverpool, which I don't think, by the way, I think it'll be an incredibly intense game. The beauty of this is that Lampard is, a, is an even, you know, sort of even-minded, sort of strong-willed manager and will stick with those, with, with those kids and stick with them and give them a belief that they can go out and play. And I just think it's a, it's a fantastic thing. that I actually think that from, from day one, Roman Abramovich wanted to see this and he will be enjoying it. And maybe it might just sort of kind of give him back the passion, which, you know, by, by all accounts, he seems to have slightly lost with the club, which is a great shame because, honestly, Chelsea under him has been an incredible rollercoaster ride. And I just think we're, we're seeing that sense of adventure again. And... You know, the kids are the kids are more than all right, aren't they? <laughs> <Yeah>. Sorry. Accident <laughs> okay, partridge. Uh Tottenham. Yeah. No. Uh they start uh, at Olympiacos. Yes. Um you were there on Saturday. Yeah. Um, crisis, what crisis? It's the first time I've seen them play really well in their new stadium. Um in fact, uh it's the first time I've seen them put together a first half like that since old White Hart Lane was standing. I mean one of the features of um that sort of mini era was first half periods of half an hour opening spells to games where they come out with a huge amount of power. Like I kind of um, remember Mike Tyson boxing in the 80s. It's that where it's all power and flurry of punches and the opponent knows that they're beaten within seconds of the contest starting. It was that. And um, the subtext is Palace were dreadful. Actually, an absolute disgrace of a performance. They were, they were just awful. Uh, but her an intensity to it, which has been missing for a long time. And there have been theories around this, and, and one of them is that Spurs draw their power from their manager, their, their energy and their appetite for the game. And for a long time, for, for many months, um, excluding the Champions League performances, um, there's, there's been this kind of uh, uh, vague malaise to everything. Players have been in the right positions, they've been doing the same things, they've been looking like themselves, but there's a slight degree of appetite has been missing from their football. And at their best... They're, they're a thrilling team to watch because they're, they're sort of this combination of intricacy and technique and ability and just relentlessness. And I think um, you go a long way to, to find two better goals than th- three and four from Saturday where they had these sort of these, these counterattacks which zigzagged up the pitch and you know, everything's in perfect harmony. The timing is spot on. It's interesting. I, I was watching Pochettino's reaction to those goals because 
for the, for the first month of this season, he would sit on the bench and he'd be fairly dispassionate. Even at big moments when they got their, their goals at Man City, for instance, which they didn't deserve and shocked everyone in the stadium, he just, he just sat sort of passively on the bench. And on Saturday it was different. He was up, he was punching, you know, he was, he was punching his fists and he was um, engaged again and he was happy and he was smiling. And I know, I know these are intangibles, but I suppose they're important because they always have been. I don't know what that equates to. I don't, I'm not ready to say, right, well, Spurs are about to return to what they were in 2015, 2016. I don't know if that's true, but it was, it was cathartic. As a Spurs fan, it was just, oh, thank goodness, this is this sort of weird uncertainty, this otherness that has, has kind of been pervasive, has, uh, has been purged for now, which yeah. is great. Do you think Pochettino's obvious uh, you know, frustration with some of the contract holdouts mm. uh, is justified? Or are the club basically paying for the strategy employed by Mr Levy? <laughs> yeah, I, do, well, I think there's a bit of both. I, th- I think Ericsson has bamboozled them, basically. Mm. And I think Ericsson has suddenly then become this sort of kind of focal point to show that actually, blimey, he's, he's kind of, you know, Daniel Levy's kind of transfer policy, you know, quite what we all thought it was. And I, I think probably... It's just highlighted the fact that basically Spurs have got some some world class players there, you know, like sort of Harry Kane, you know, sort of Deli Alley when it when 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 he's on song, you know, and and basically Loris World Cup winning goalkeeper, and and frankly that they've managed it brilliantly, particularly with 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 contracts and the like, and they've always kept their sort of kind of balance and and, and distance with contracts to make sure that they're tied down. And Ericsson, without doubt, has, has basically thrown a spanner in the works and then highlighted it to other players. And so he's given them this problem because various points, he sort of sat down with them and said, I would just want to try something new. And then basically by the time then Chelsea, uh, sorry, Tottenham have um, uh, come to sort of throw some money at it. and 230. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's too late. But if they'd done that earlier, in, in, you know, the reason why they didn't do that earlier is because they don't generally pay that much money. And then they've let it drift and drift and, and think that he'll sign, don't worry, he'll sign. And frankly, he's sort of now turned around in a position where he can sort of say, well, look, if I do go as a free agent next summer, which looks likely, then he can earn even more money than that. So he's really, you know, he has given them this problem. And that uncertainty, I think, did fester. I mean, Vertonghen as well. Vertonghen clearly wasn't happy at the start of the season because, you know, he's a, you know his contract is... Is also sort of running down, but then he he then wasn't in the team, and then that kind of that uncertainty really, I think, affected the dressing room. I think it's also affected, you know, Pochettino. I can't get away from thinking that this is a really big season for Pochettino. That basically, he, he either needs to go and win some silverware to keep himself happy, and I don't think that's sort of the expectation on him. I think it's his own expectations. Mm. And basically, he takes this team further forward, or I think he, he he has to make a decision in the summer to to say, do I stay here for the longer term, or do I then make a decision to perhaps move on again? And look, I know we've been in this position before. People like me have talked about it before, but I just think that there has been a a general long sense of dissatisfaction from Pochettino and I think something has, ha- has to happen this season to show him that Spurs can move on again and he can move on again with Spurs because without doubt in my mind he is up there as third perhaps behind Guardiola and Klopp but as one of the best managers in the world. Mm. On Saturday uh, Tottenham are at Leicester in the BT Sport game mm. 
Leicester, I know you saw Leicester on Saturday at United, didn't you? Hugely impressed, yeah. Yeah. Are they the sort of team who will give a much more significant test than a Crystal Palace? Oh, of course, of course. Uh, They're hugely more, considering more talented to start with. Um, I've got a little bit of a concern with Leicester in that um, it seems almost as if they don't quite believe in themselves. I know it's a kind of pithy throwaway remark, but I... I remember seeing them at Stamford Bridge earlier in the season when that day Chelsea were very much there for the taking. Um, and they kind of tiptoed onto the pitch and played within themselves, allowed themselves to go a goal behind. And it took them about an hour to realise that Chelsea weren't all that and that they could be attacked and they could be exploited. And if that game had gone on for another 10 minutes, they'd have won it. I've only seen uh, about 25 minutes of the game on, on Saturday, so John's probably a, uh, a, a better source for contemporary analysis than me. But... I think they need to reach a tipping point. They need, they need a, really soon, they need a game in which they show themselves what kind of team they can be. Because that midfield is hugely talented. Like, there, are, there aren't many that can compete with that. Um, with the amount of creativity and the, sort of the, the dynamics and how sort of a Tillemans and a, a Madison, they suit playing with someone like Jamie Vardy and you know, his acceleration, his ability to get behind a defence. But they need to knock over a big team pretty soon so in that respect yes it's a huge test for Spurs because they are that kind of opponent you go and I, Leicester have you know, had good results against them at, at uh, the King Power before you go and knock over a team like that and all of a sudden you kind of get the sort of the, the germinating belief and the, the sort of right well actually we are good and next time we go to an Old Trafford or a Stamford Bridge we can actually exert ourselves on the opponent rather than sort of you know, you know, feel out the temperature of the water and, you know, how difficult is this going to be? And it's kind of OK because people don't really expect us to win at Man United or a Chelsea. So it's all right if we don't. That's got to go because talent-wise, they should be aiming towards the top six. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I, um, I'm not biased aside. I, I think they're a better side than Arsenal on paper at the moment. I think they're a better side than Man United on paper. I think they're more seasoned than Chelsea. So... Realistically, what, why should that not be? Why should that not instruct the ambition for this year? Mm. Looking, if I could, John, just across the board at the Champions League ties this week, there, there are three others which stand mm. out. You know, one of which is Barcelona at Dortmund. Uh, Jaden Sancho, you know, he's had an, an immense impact. Is he the type of talent? You know, we talked about Van Dijk being mm. linked. That will maybe end up not coming to the Premier League but ending up at a Barcelona or a Real Madrid? Oof, that's an interesting point, actually, because, yeah, I, d- I do think he's got that potential. I do think he's... What he's done at, at Dortmund is, is just so spectacular, isn't it? To put f- his faith and his confidence and his belief in his ability and saying, I'm not going to wait my turn at City and, you know, I really believe that I'm going to go and make it. So if, if he's as fearless as he is... In doing that and going abroad at, at, at sort of at such a young age, then Barcelona and, and whoever else will know that this, uh, this is a player who will embrace a different challenge. Mm. Because let's be honest, I think that within the, the sort of the British culture, for whatever reason, you only have to look at the very few amount of players that actually go abroad. I mean, it's unbelievable. Mm. I mean, I just can't. I, 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 it's, it's staggering. I realise, obviously, the riches on offer in the Premier League, and we like to think that the Premier League is the best league in the world, but actually there's a bigger wide world out there. And I just think if I was in that opportunity, I'd absolutely love to go abroad and sort of, you know, learn different culture, but also play some of the spectacular football elsewhere. 
And I just think that that's, it's staggering that more players don't. And so the very fact that Jaden Sancho has done that at such a young age, such a tender time in his life, I think is amazing. So he won't lack the confidence in doing that. And I think the other clubs will look at that and say, well, actually, he is a kid that will, you know is willing to do that. Mm. He's just, he's so special. I think he doesn't have that kind of, you know, explosive dynamic that sort of Sterling has. But he does have a different way of playing that he never wastes a pass, he never wastes a cross. You know, he's statistically amazing, absolutely immense. And that fits in with the Dortmund model, of course it does. But I do think that basically, at some stage, he will outgrow Dortmund and, and then look for a new challenge. Yeah, I'd love to think it was in the Premier League, by the way, because I think he's, you know, purely from a selfish point of view, mm. I think he's such a special player. Mm. What do you make of Barcelona at the moment? You know, they have their own prodigy just coming through. Um, yeah, Ansu Fati, 16 years and 318 days. He's scoring after two minutes at the new Camp. Yeah. How good are they? And are we witnessing here a generational talent being born? Oh, that's a difficult question to answer. I don't know. What I'll say about him at the moment is I like that he knows already when to release the ball. Like, cause a lot of players have the ability that he has and the technique and everything, but he knows what to do once he's beaten the player and how quickly... Um, you know, I'd say actually his uh, his assist for Frankie De Jong's goal um, was the better moment for him, which was like five minutes after his goal. So it was all within that first ten minutes. But he, he looks terrific. Barcelona um, as a whole, I've got some questions still because uh, I think they're still slightly between eras. I'm not as sold as everybody else seems to be on De Jong as the long term successor to Sergio Busquets. Um, that will, that's clearly the plan of the next three years. I don't think they're I don't think they're equivalents. I don't think they're the same kind of player. Um, I, I still can't. I, I still don't have an answer for what happens after Leo Messi's career finishes, because how can you? He's in my mind, he's the greatest player I've ever seen. He's, uh, you know, he, he is a uh, an entity of his own that exists outside the game. So how do you replace that? Ditto Luis Suarez, obviously not the same caliber of player, but you know, because I don't think they've actually, I don't think they've bought terribly well prior to this summer. I'm not sure that Osman Dembele is was worth the transfer fee that they, they spent. I don't think that he is capable necessarily of replicating or playing at the, high, at the same level as, um, you know, as the players that he's hoping to succeed. Um, and defence, what happens when Gerard Piquet goes? So I, I don't know. And also I, the background situation of Barcelona is the huge wage bill problem because this is still an issue, as it is Real Madrid, actually, you know, behind all the, the Gareth Bale stuff over the summer. Um, so how do they compete in, in the next era for the very best players? And I don't just mean the very best 25-year-olds. How do they compete for the very best 16-year-olds? Uh, La Masia is a, an academy. That pipeline isn't what it was. I know it still has its reputation, but its habit of producing top-class players, that aside, is not you know, where, it, where it needs to be, really. Um, it doesn't compete, for instance, with the, kind of the, the potential that seems to exist in Manchester City's academy, Tottenham's academy. Um, they don't have the same recruiting model as a Dortmund. So these are questions. I don't think Barcelona are on the, uh, on the edge of a precipice by any means, but I don't think they're going to, to exist in the same area as they have done. Right. Two other ties, you know, Atletico Madrid against Juventus, mm-hmm. Ronaldo, etc. And also Real Madrid um, at PSG. Are we in for another instalment of the Neymar... Uh, melodrama you know he, <laughs> he comes back scores the injury time winner at the weekend against Strasbourg is he going to dominate again I'd like to think so it's just that basically I would like to see him dominate in the Champions League this season for the right reasons right you know I just think 
there, there reaches a point in, in, in basically with, with Neymar where I just want to see the potential fulfilled. Because yeah. I, I feel this incredible sense of frustration with, with him in that basically I still believe, and it's a, it's a strange thing to say, that he almost left Barcelona because he didn't feel he was the main man. And I, I know people will dispute that and sort of say he's a global superstar already. Well, I'm not so sure about that, you know, because I thought that it, it, with Messi and Suarez, he always thought that basically, I know we had that, well, you know, season of sort of the, the, all the talk about MSN, but it was, it was actually, I just think that he thought, I've got to show that I'm the main man. And I think he's gone to PSG. And for me, he's just been a, dis- a huge disappointment, mm. whether it's kind of, Playing up, getting himself banned, you know, sort of, you know, trying to engineer a move out of that place. I just think it looks ugly. And sooner or later, he's got to step forward and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the man, and basically, I'm the best player in Europe. Uh, you know, I can go and do things for 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 Brazil and sort of show what I'm capable of. Because he just hasn't done that for me. He's got all the talent in the world, but at the moment, we're just talking about this kind of almost a show pony who does sort of, you know, boxer tricks and. And we all love that, and it's it's amazing. But I want to see the real deal, and I think he's kind of got to show that this season because last season was just such a it was you know it was disgraceful at times. You know, sort of kind of obviously you know the Man United thing, and you you know just that sense of satis- you know dissatisfaction is just the player's got to step up. Yeah, don't mention Manchester United there, Seb. This is the week that they realise what they're missing. <laughs> you know, they're in the Europa League against Astana, mm. one of these teams that just sort of crop up every year and no-one really knows a lot about them. They get beaten, everyone forgets them again. Mm. Can a club of Manchester United's stature afford too many years outside the Champions League? First of all, Mark, I think that's, that's the moment that gets repeated on, on social media forever if Astana go and beat Man United. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> Calvin mugs off Astana. Um, uh, no, they can't, obviously, uh, because... Not for fibbling reasons, commercial reasons, but United's business model is, is based on a particular perception of what they are. Um, it's not going to take one year outside of the Champions League. It's not going to change that. But you can't... The profile of playing on a Thursday night is quite damaging. But then what Manchester United have to realise, in my mind, is that they aren't, they aren't entitled to play in the Champions League if they don't qualify for it. You don't exist uh, on a certain plane within the game just because you're Manchester United and you have your, your history and your 90s and your Ferguson and your Cantona. And it doesn't mean anything now. Like it, it gives a sort of certain um, financial power, of course. It still does. But Manchester United, in a way, I think it's useful for them. Like, and playing the Europa League is not quite being, having your feet held to the fire. But at the same time, you need to realise your football structures are not good enough you know, compared with your, your rivals in the Premier League or the teams that you think are still your rivals. They don't compare to the way Manchester City operates. They certainly don't compare to the way Liverpool operate. And as a, sort of, as, as a mature en- uh, enterprise, they don't compare to Arsenal, to Spurs... Um, even really to Chelsea at the moment. So I think it's actually good for them. I think it's, it's humbling. And I think Man United, not you know, the fans or the manager or the players, I think their, their executive structure needs humbling and needs a kind of a, the prompt to, right, let's have a rethink about this. Is this the best way forward for us as a football club? Not as a business, not selling you know, potato chip uh, partnerships in Mexico or whatever. That's uh, part of modern football. I accept that completely. But there's another half which they've been neglecting too, and I think that that has to be addressed. And if a trip to Astana does that, terrific. Yeah, you were at Old Trafford. What's the mood like? <laughs> um, I, I do think there's still some uncertainty. It's a, it's a bit, 
strange place to be in because actually I think a lot of the, the, the trepidation is probably mm. the, the, the better word really in that basically I, I, I still have this thing where and I, I took a bit of stick on, on sort of social media last week was actually I think if you evaluate it it didn't have too bad a window and in fact I'd, I'd be as bold as to call it quite a good window Bear with me on this one. It's just that basically you spend £150 million on three British players who each in their own way have done really well, I think, in, in a team which is, let's yeah. be honest, struggling yeah. a bit. Mm. You know, sort of had an indifferent start to the season, but they've done okay. They've also got rid of Alexis Sanchez. But the bigger issue is, is for me, and, and listen, they were missing players on Saturday, so it was a very lopsided lineup. And then to get a result against Leicester was a very good result and a very big win, I think, for Solskjaer. And each win like that gives him a little bit more credit in the bank, a bit, buys him a bit more time and respect. Um, and I just think that the one issue that they clearly didn't um, sort of address is that sort of anchor man midfield role, a real kind of leader in midfield because he's Pogba is not that player if you want to get the best out of Pogba he's a world-class player and you so you need to I think you just you know play him a little bit further forward thought McTominay was magnificent um on Saturday he really had a super game and made him my man of the match but he again he's not actually that player and so they do have sort of kind of you know frailties or weaknesses in that lineup and I, th- I just think the Man United fans are thinking what's this season going to bring but the, the, you know there's Every other team is sort of struggling. The other, the top two are away from everyone else. Spurs should bridge the gap a little bit, but there's a top four place up for grabs. United can get in there by doing that, or they can get in the Champions League via the Europa League. This is still a season that's sort of almost up for grabs for, for United. Yes, we've all got doubts. Yes, we all think maybe Solskjaer you know, is, is the fairy tale rather than the real deal. Mm. But I do think there's an opportunity still there for United. You are both watching Arsenal. Yeah. Now, you know, I know you're going to Frankfurt mm. on Thursday. Um, Seb, give me your uh, reasoned analysis of the shambles that passes as a defence. Dreadful. But I don't, I don't include just those two centre-backs in the defence. I, I thought the midfield uh, after Sabahis went off was awful. I mean, I, um, we were talking before we, we started recording about uh, it was like watching a, uh, a basketball team to defend. That, 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 was the, that was the approach. It was uh, a 2-0 lead at half-time against a, uh, an opposition who are fragile, who haven't been able to defend, who've just sat their manager because they can't defend. And the response to that situation was to collapse behind the ball, uh, to waste time, to buy cheap free kicks, and to exert no kind of attacking pressure on the front foot. It was extraordinary. And it was a stirring comeback. Credit to Watford. Um, you know, great heart, uh, they got what they deserved, they probably should have won the game in the end. If the game goes on for another 10 minutes, they probably do. But I, I couldn't believe what I was saying. I mean, uh, Socrates' is a mistake, you know, hands up, that, that it happens. David Luiz will never learn not to do that, seemingly. I don't, I still don't really understand what he was trying to do. If you wave a leg in the penalty box, a forward is going to fall over it and you are going to concede a penalty. But I was so disappointed by the sort of, the inability to, to bite into the game from midfield. So you have Jacker, Guendouzi I think is a good player, but a young player and you can't expect him to have full responsibility. You have your club captain, or at least the player wearing your armband, who doesn't really do anything without the ball other than make angry faces and make bad tackles occasionally. Mm. Like, but doesn't that point uh, up, John, that they, they're a team without a leader? Yeah, absolutely. John, can I ask, like, mm. who, who would you 
I know we, we, we sort of um, we exaggerate the importance of captaincy, but as an example set within your football team, is that... Who, surely not him. No, no. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what he does. I think there's I a tendency with, with you know, some managers to say, look, there's a player there that is almost there, yeah. and so I'll give him a bit of an extra responsibility and see whether that kind of pushes him on. And I think that's, what I've, that's what's happened with Xhaka. I mean, Xhaka is... Xhaka, could, you know, he's capable of of having good games and, and, and being a good midfield player, but then he'll have mad moments like yesterday or in Derby, the North London the Derby. Derby. Oh, you know, it's just, just crazy. What's he doing? And I just think that maybe they've given the armband to say, you know, transplant into his brain, saying, give, give us responsibility, give us some leadership. But I just think, look, Arsenal are still a team this season, missing big players. I think Rob Holding, actually... Bellerin would be a much better captain, much better leader. Bellerin, Bellerin I think, is a good, interesting person, engaging. Absolutely. Kieran Tierney will make a difference. And I think if you put those three in, they'll be better. But I do think it's an interesting bait, isn't it, about tactically, don't get me wrong, I'm all in favour of of, of playing from the back and blimey, that that, that makes me sound like an age-old dinosaur even (laughs) in saying that. Look, we all want to see that and I think that's the only way to play. But I have to say that the, the goal kick rule has changed football. Yeah. I think you now have to have much better technical players to play that way. It's the football that I love and want to see. And it's so much better to see a team playing out from the back. It's the way that they should play. But I just wonder whether Arsenal, with that greater pressing and yeah. intensity on their play, have those players to play it. You make yourselves look idiots if you've then got players who are not capable of playing that way in trying to pursue it and play that way. And you could see what they were trying to do on, on, on Sunday, and it worked in the first half, because if you can pass your way around the Watford press, then you've given yourselves yeah. acres and acres of space further up the pitch. It worked in the first half. It was embarrassing in the second half. Mm. They looked like Keystone cops trying to pass their way around. I mean, what Socrates was doing when he actually had to make the nails out wide is anyone's guess. I like Socrates. I think he's a committed player and he's a sort of a strong player. He's one of the leaders who takes responsibility. But unfortunately, he's not one of those players who who can... play out from the back with any style and with any confidence, I'm afraid. OK. Time's run away with us. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, just a last, one last question, almost a one-word answer. Will an English team win the Champions League this season? And if so, who? Yes, Man City. No. One word. OK. <laughs> Maybe Juventus. Maybe Juventus. Well, Pep, as John said earlier, is very sensitive to criticism, you know, fraudiola and all that. But class is permanent, and I agree with John again, City to win the Champions League. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.